So if you've been tracking along with us, maybe even you haven't, you probably see a, a very different picture of Israel than how we started. It's very uh, fun to look back at maybe some of the first chapters of Exodus and the last chapters of Exodus. We see a very different people, a very different Moses. Uh, the people have changed quite a bit, although not complete yet in their understanding and following God. They'll have many more challenges to come. But at this point, we see a picture of people who are beginning to learn who God is and begin, beginning to learn to trust him. Do you remember in Exodus 19, where Moses brings the people? It's one of those fascinating verses. I love it, where it says that, and Moses brought the people to the mountain. Do you remember what it says next? To meet God. It's this fascinating moment in the story of Israel where they've seen him turn, turn the Nile River to blood, bring in plagues of frogs and locusts. Literally, they have watched his angel of death pass over all of their homes. They've seen the powerful hand of God, and yet they still don't quite know him. And so Exodus 19, they meet him out Mount Sinai. They see his power, his glory revealed in that moment. The mountain shakes. There's loud uh, trumpets blowing. It thunders. It's, it's this magnificent sight of who he is. And of course, Moses then goes up the mountain. For, he's gone for 40 days. Uh, actually, he's probably gone a lot less than that before they realize or think to themselves, we need something that we can see. And so they fashion a golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain and realizes that the people don't know God at all. And so he begins to teach them again about what it means to be in covenant with God. And although they have broken God's covenant at this point, remember at, up to this moment, God's covenant is very conditional. And if you read all of that before, God says, I will do this if you do this. It's a very conditional covenant. So they find themselves separated from God and separated from God's promise. But good for them that back in Genesis, God made an unconditional promise to a man named Abram. And this promise would be to bring his descendants into a land that is not their own. And so instead of God completely wiping away Israel for their idol worship, God intends to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And he tells Moses, he says, Moses, I made a promise that I cannot break. And so I'm going to go before you. I'm going to send my angel before you. And I'm going to clear the land for you. There will not be an enemy in your sight so that I fulfill my promise to Abram. You can go into the land, but know this, I will not be with you. And so Moses, a man who quaked at the sight of a burning bush, Ed preached to this passage, stands in the stead and mediates between Israel and God. And he says, God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. If your presence is not with us, I can't lead these people. And so God relents, it brings his presence back onto Israel and is guiding them again in the completion of the tabernacle, gives them the law again, and promises his presence with them once more. And so we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 36, as now the people of God are absolutely thrilled that God has not abandoned them. 
He has not walked away from them. He has not sent them on without his presence. And if you remember last week, we talked about how Moses asked for anyone whose heart was willing, anyone whose heart was moved, even though God had commanded the tabernacle to be built, that was a command. He invited people into the process of that. He didn't command anyone to bring anything for it. He didn't command anyone to work for it. He said, if your heart is moved, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. So here's where we pick up. Exodus chapter 36. Now Bezalel and Holiab and every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know and how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with everything that the Lord has commanded. Now, this is problematic, remember, because before even the Lord commanded anything, Israel said in unison, whatever you say, we will do. And of course, they didn't last, I don't know if it was hours before they broke that promise. And so now he's saying that this should be performed exactly how the Lord has commanded. Notice verse 2. And then Moses called Bezalel and Oliab and every skillful person in the Lord who had put skill and everyone whose heart had stirred him had come to the perform uh, to work to the work to perform it. And they received from Moses every contribution which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing him voluntary offerings every morning. And all the skillful people who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which with uh, they were performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. And so Moses issued a command and circulated a proclamation throughout the camp saying, no man or woman is to perform work any longer for the contributions of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing any more for the material that they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Isn't this incredible? We see a very different people here. It's as if they have caught a vision and attached to themselves joyfully with what God is doing. And they desperately want to be a part of it. Before, just, I don't know, months before, as they've come across uh, to the Red Sea, they doubted God and Israel, or Moses, and they said, Moses, we're going to pick a leader, we're going to head back to Egypt. Cool? When they were hungry, they said, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? When they were thirsty, they complained again. They had no trust in anyone, much less Yahweh. And here it's as if they cannot be a part enough of what he's doing. Moses literally has to stop the people from giving anything else. And he sends a proclamation out and he says, no more. It's clear that they're joyously a part of what God is doing. And I believe that their generosity was probably contagious. I'm guessing that people gave, it made others want to be included. The point here isn't their gifts, I don't think. It's more of the generosity, although it is. I believe it's a story of their generosity and it's a story of their joyful and cheerful hearts being united to what God is doing. And I think this is a lesson for us. That when we participate with God out of obligation only, that will most likely give the ones around us a very bitter taste of what he's doing. 
Some of you in the room might have grown up with parents or around church who lived nothing like a joyous life in Christ throughout the week and drug you to church on Sundays and it was simply an obligation. And you have probably had to fight through your thoughts. Do I desperately need community? But when we attach ourselves to the mission of God joyously, it sends a message to those around us and it's, it's contagious in a way that says, I desperately want this. And I believe this is what is happening here, just not with just gifts, not with bringing things, but wanting to be a part of what God is doing. This is, of course, very different than how they came out of Egypt. And I believe that, that this is a, a part where uh, this may be the first time where Israel blesses God. Throughout the whole journey, they've been a stiff-necked people, an obstinate people. And I believe what we're seeing now is the first time that Israel blesses God. Think about that phrase for a second, that we have the opportunity to minister to or bless God. And I'm not making this up. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. And this is a phrase where the Lord uses uh, uh, an instruction, but also attributing something that the people have the opportunity to bring him. And he says this, at the time that the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi, we've talked about that in Exodus, to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord, listen to this, to minister to him and to bless his name. To this day, there's an aspect that scripture says that God has, has taken these people, Levites, priests in the Old Testament. We know that the New Testament says that we are a royal priesthood, right? So they have the opportunity and their job is to minister to the Lord, to bless the Lord. Now, I think we think often of blessing the Lord with our songs but maybe we miss it with our lives. There's a whole host of scripture that, that talks about this principle that pushes this. One is Psalm 103, verse 22, and it says this, bless the Lord, all you host, not who sing, not who say something, who serve him, how? Doing his Bless the Lord, all you works of his, all in the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. He says it blesses the Lord when we obey him. It blesses the Lord. It ministers to the Lord, not only when we sing songs, but with our obedience. We bless the Lord with our trust, with our hope, with attributing things that belong to him. And so when Israel trusts God enough to bring their possessions to take a part in what he's doing, it blesses him. I think when we trust God enough to obey, it blesses him. When we live our lives with open hands, it blesses him. When we readily forgive, it blesses him. When we refuse to be a part of the things that our flesh desperately desires and turn to him instead, it blesses him. This shouldn't be a foreign concept to us because I think we think God many times is, is in a completely unemotional God as if he doesn't have feelings, but we know that this is not true. Many times who Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Scripture says was moved with compassion. 
He looked on a scenario, on a circumstance, on a person, and it moved him to do something about him. We know that Jesus wept over Jerusalem, over the loss of Lazarus, over the loss of his dear friend, John the Baptist. We know that he laughed and cried. He was blessed when his disciples obeyed. He was blessed when Mary poured the very expensive perfume and oil over him. God has given us the opportunity to bless him. Think about this for a second. The God of the universe who needs nothing has invited us into a privileged relationship to bless him. God has given his children a privileged status to bless him. As the children of God, we have the opportunity to bless him. And I could tell you probably countless stories of how my children have blessed me. I like to watch them do the things that they're good at. I enjoy that. I'm blessed by that, but it's God's gift that blesses me, not theirs. You know, when they play an instrument, when they do something uh, really fantastic, I'm proud of, uh, they're not necessarily blessing me. It's God who has blessed me in that moment. Though my children have the opportunity to bless me when they trust me, when they obey me, when they rely on me, this blesses me. They bless me not because they're capable of something, but when they choose me, when they choose our relationship first, when we have the opportunity to bless God in this way, not just Sundays, but every day. C.S. Lewis tells a story of a father who received a present uh, and he was none the richer because of it. Uh, He gave his son six pence to buy him a present and his son buys this present and gives it back to him in the form of a present. And C.S. Lewis says, the father was no more richer because he had received this present because he had given his son the money to buy the present. In the same way, God gives us these gifts, these abilities. He gives it to us, just like Israel is wandering out of Egypt, carrying a a bounty of treasure from the Egyptians. And then he asks them, would anybody like to contribute to what I'm doing? He gives them what he already has, but he invites them into this incredible journey and this opportunity to bless him. Certainly Israel felt the blessing of blessing God and they understood that this was the fullness of life and joy when they did things God's way and they continued to pursue him in everything, not forever, we know that. We understand uh, that there's gonna be a lot of trials coming up, but at least for the rest of Exodus, we see them deeply committed to God's plan. For the next remaining chapters, all of them, Moses tells us in detail how they obeyed and followed his instructions. Much, if not all of these chapters are repetitive. So Exodus 36 through most of 40 is literally uh, Moses telling us that the people of Israel did exactly what God had commanded them to do. And it's marked literally by uh, their building of the tabernacle. If you remember all of the instructions down to the type of, of weaving of the purple and gold and blue of the candlestick and the molding, all of those detailed instructions, Moses is now saying that these are not things that were told to us to do. These are things that we are obeying in. And it's marked by a phrase over and over and over again. The next four chapters are marked by this phrase, just as the Lord. Lord had commanded Moses. 
And we see this again in 5, 7, 21, 26, 29, 31, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. This same phrase is repeated over and over and over and over again. It's as if Moses is trying to communicate to the believers that will come thousands of years after him. There is joy and there is goodness and there is just so much blessing that comes to our life when we decide to do life God's way. When we choose to obey him in the way that he has asked of us. Notice some of these other passages, Exodus 39, 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting was completed and the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Verse 47, so the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses examined all the work and behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done. 4016, thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Verse 32, and when they had entered the tent of meeting, when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded them. Not just the, the essentials, not just the elements of the tabernacle, but the way in which they were supposed to enter. They obeyed everything that God was saying. You see it changed people. They're no longer stiff-necked and arrogant in their ways and think, no, 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 I know better. At this moment, they're dedicated to every single word. What I love is that we're able to see how God is doing this. He brings Israel out of Egypt into the desert. And it's said that many times, I think, God could have wiped out all the Egyptians. Think about the plagues. He literally sends his angel of death and selectively chooses through the last plague to put to death the firstborn of every Egyptian who did not trust God to paint the blood on the doorpost. He could have done that for all of Egypt and kept Israel there. He could have bypassed the whole journey Egypt was already established. He could have just said, now this is your land. But he brought them out of Egypt to get Egypt out of them. All of the false gods, all of the idol worship, all of the things that they had sunk deep into their souls for 400 years. He's bringing them away from all of those comforts into suffering in his presence. And we see a very different people. Here's what I believe is true, that the presence of God changes us and shapes us into the people who are more like him. Edith Schaefer, the wife of uh, Francis Schaefer, wrote in The Art of Life, she says this, "When, when I was a little girl, my mother would often say to me, Edith, I know who you were playing with today. She knew because I'd uh, become something like the other little girl, whichever one it was, enough like her that the girl could be identified in my changed accent, my mannerisms, and the other telltale signs. See, children often copy other children quite unconsciously, but so do adults. We're affected by the people we spend time with 
in one way or another. But it's not just the people that we spend time with that changes us. It's the God that we spend time with that changes us. I think we're also shaped and changed by the lack of time that we spend with God. I think that many of us are frustrated at the rate we grow or the lack of growth in our life. And that's because many times we're relying on other people to tell us about their encounter and the presence of God in their life. I think coming to church is a good thing. I think being here is better than not. But if this is all that you have, you'll probably be frustrated and feel distant from God. Our time here on Sundays is meant to fuel your relationship with God, your walk with God, not to replace it. You have to get alone with him, learn him. And when you do, he will change you. He will change you. You'll look back and see someone who's grown. I think uh, that's my worst fear is to be around someone I haven't seen in 10 years, in five years or five months, and for them to say, you're the same person. I desperately want to see people from my past and say, man, I hardly recognize the spirit that's in you. I want to be that different. I want to look back at snapshots on my life and see the growth that the Lord is producing. I want to see the fruit. I want to see how my opinions and convictions have been shaped to more like his. So Exodus shows us a very different people because they've been with God. And it shows us a very different Moses. He's the same man who trembled at the burning bush. And and then later he stands in the stead for Israel. The same one who said he couldn't talk, prayed big prayers for the people. We see in the first pages of Exodus, a man who was gripped with fear. And later, um, by the time that the book closes, we see a man absolutely engulfed in his faith in God. So I think Exodus shows us a a picture of a very different people, but it also shows us a picture of God's faithfulness. When I look at Exodus, I see a very different people and I see the very same God. A very different people, the very same God. Now I wanna bring us back to three ways that the Lord has used the book of Exodus for me to show me who he is and also to point to Jesus. As we've been studying this book, I've learned a lot and it's challenged me a lot, but I've been fascinated with the way that the entire book, literally God is moving Israel as his children, but also in future generations to look for the Messiah, to look for Jesus. The first is this, I think Exodus prepares us for Jesus through Moses. Exodus prepares us for Jesus through Moses. Even though they're an obstinate and stiff-necked people, God chooses to interact with Israel through a mediator. He points out that even when Moses is gone, there's a greater mediator that's needed. And I think the person and the calling of Moses is certainly foreshadowing the person and the calling of Jesus, and it's one that's evidenced by a number of passages in Scripture throughout uh, Scripture. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, God says to Moses this. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
Over a millennium later in Acts chapter 3, Peter uh, quotes Deuteronomy 18 and says that it's fulfilled in Jesus. So we see that this relationship in this instance includes Jesus' eventual coming was promised to Moses and Jesus and Moses both occupied this office of prophet. Both Jesus and Moses were Hebrews. Both Jesus and Moses spoke the words given to them by the Father. But Hebrews tells us how much greater Christ was than Moses. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession." who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful and all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. In this section, we, we see that, fun, that Jesus and Moses were faithful to the father's leading, but that Jesus is worthy of greater honor because he was much greater even than Moses. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says it this way, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And so like Moses, who stands in the stead of Israel when they have walked away from God's covenant, from his plan, from his promise, Moses stands in the stead and prays for the people, so does Christ for us. Christ becomes our mediator once and for all. Hebrews 9 says it like this, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He says the, he is the mediator. And this is not a claim that Jesus didn't make himself. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's a mediator and a necessary one, an absolute one. We have no hope without Christ. And so through the study of Exodus, the writer here is cluing us in and pushing us to this fact, this promise that without a mediator, we'll be left alone without the presence of God. But the promise of God is that he will send one that is even greater than Moses. The second way Exodus prepares us for Jesus is through the Passover. Exodus prepares us for Jesus through the Passover we see and know this story well, but back in Egypt, we know that, that, that Pharaoh was obstinate. He had hardened his heart towards God. The people were reluctant to follow God. And so he's showing them his power. He's also showing them his mercy and then the slowness of how he's choosing to act. And so this final plague 
He says this in Exodus 12, verse 23. He says, For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he says the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You know, it's interesting that when the Lord sees the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, he will choose to pass over you. He could have said, when you see it on the doorpost. He could have just said, when you see it on the lintel. But instead, Christ goes to a cross. God is choosing to push Israel already to see the blood in the shape of Christ's hands stretched out for us. He can do it any way that he wants to, and still he's already forming this cross for them. Exodus 12, verse 5, remember this, the lamb should be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you should keep it until the 14th day. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamps, their lambs at twilight. So we, we've talked about this before, that the, the preparations would begin on the 10th day of the month. And that's when they would take the lamb. That's when they would take the lamb from the herd and bring it to their house, less than a year old. It wouldn't be until the 14th day that they would slaughter this animal for the sake of their family, for the atonement of their sins. This would be personal. It would be costly. And the idea of death and blood was important. If you read through chapter 12, you start to realize the importance of this slain lamb and its blood. There's much of it. In verse 6, there's the slaughter of the lamb. Verse 7, it's applied to the doorpost. In verse 13, the blood will be a sign for their homes. It's this way because blood represents life. And the blood is a sign of life that ended so that your life could continue. But there's a dual Passover here. Notice the text in Exodus 12, 13. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. So the blood is a sign for you that you trust God, that you believe him. And then he says this, and when I see the blood, a sign for him, he will pass over you. This is incredible because we see the progression of salvation. In Genesis, it was a lamb who was slain to cover the sins of an individual, Adam and Eve. God uses the skin of an animal to cover the sins of them. There was a ram in the thicket for Isaac. In Exodus chapter 12, the blood of the lamb caused the Lord to pass over the sin of a family. Later in Exodus, we're given the instruction for the atonement lamb. And the priests would slaughter one lamb, lay their hands on another, and part the sins of a nation onto this lamb and send him into the wilderness. Then that lamb would take away the sin of a nation. But John the Baptist one day looked up and saw Christ coming into the Jordan River and he says these words behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world this is a progression that we begin to see in Exodus that there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood so the Passover prepares us for Jesus and his sacrifice for us that he would shed his blood 
for us. And scripture pushes us to understand this over and over again. Think this, live this. Romans 5 verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified, how by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Salvation only because of the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 13, verse 12, and, he, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. 1 Peter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. We are only forgiven through the blood of Christ. And Exodus begins to tell the story. Exodus prepares us for Jesus through Moses, through the Passover. And I love this because most often it becomes lost in the details. I believe that Exodus prepares us for Jesus through the tabernacle. Do you remember as we were discussing the details of the tabernacle, how as you became closer into the Holy of Holies, the detail and the intricacy and the holiness that that you would have to enter in and through, it became more intense. Notice this in Exodus 25, verse 8. God says to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me. Why? That I might dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furniture, just so you shall construct it. The very fact that God would say, build a tabernacle. Why? So that I can be with you. It's one thing for God to have his presence off at a distance. It's another thing for God to command his tabernacle to be placed in the middle of the camp. Why? Because he wants to dwell with us. It prepares us for Jesus who in John chapter one says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and and he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him, the creator. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Apart from him, nothing exists, scripture says. In him, life was life, and the life was the light of mankind. It paints for us this picture of this great and glorious creator who needs nothing of anyone. Then verse 14, and that same word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Exodus begins to prepare us for this great encounter with God that he would chase us down and come to dwell among us. Have you ever thought about what that means for Christ? That the immortal becomes mortal. That he chooses to wrap his glory in the fragility of human flesh. 
We see that, that Christ himself would have emotions, would feel physical pain. Think about the conditions of the time. I don't want to get gruesome here, but I want you to think about to yourself, you're the creator of the entire world and you leave your throne in heaven and place yourself on earth at a time where you wouldn't feel the the coolness of the conditioned air. You wouldn't drink filtered water. Not that that would be any less glorious or any more glorious for the king of heaven. That God would subject himself to viruses, to stomach pain, to mental anguish. We can't imagine that God would feel all the emotions of humanity, would feel the pain of humanity, and also not subject himself to all of the things humanity is subjected to. We see this, we'll see it next week as Christ prepares for the cross. He comes and enters into a creation that would mock him. In one moment, he sits on the throne of creation while angels gather around. And their job is to only declare what's true about him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We sang it this morning over and over. And still not enough. He leaves this place to come and dwell among us. Whether rip out his beard and say, if you're the son of God, tell us who did. The Roman soldiers who spit on his face, who he formed that DNA. He came to dwell among us so that he could save us. See, Exodus tells us the story that God never stops pursuing his people and he isn't finished pursuing you. No matter where you are, what's in your path, or what you briefly left at home today, he loves you. And he's constantly proving it through Jesus. His spirit is with you in the spirit of God. And notice how Exodus ends. Notice how Exodus climaxes with the presence of God. He says this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. And for out, throughout their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day. And then there was fire in it by night in the sight of all of the houses of Israel. I love this. In the sight of all the houses of Israel. It's as if no one was excluded from the presence of God. I don't know if you've ever felt this way before. I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself that your past was too great. 
Maybe your mistakes were too many. Maybe your circumstances even now dictate your relationship with God. He's not finished pursuing you. And there's not one person who desires to be in the presence of God that he says, my son's sacrifice was not good enough for that. The sacrifice of my son was not good enough for you. So I hope as we have studied through Exodus, you have seen a good and powerful and pursuant God over obstinate and stiff-necked people. And you're able to place yourself in that and say, if God pursues them, surely he's pursuing me. If God is faithful to them, surely he will be faithful to me. If God is able to move mountains for them, surely he can move mountains for me. We serve the same God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're incredibly grateful that you have chosen to speak to us through this book, through your people, and through your promises. Lord, we're grateful that that you didn't just promise your presence to Israel, but you've promised it to us through your Son and your Spirit. We look at Jesus and we see you. We have access to the spirit of God and we hear you. So Lord, I I pray for those in the room today that may feel far from you. Maybe our sin and our disobedience has caused, Lord, this, this distance. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that we would cry out to our mediator, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, for the blood that you have shed for us in our stead. So teach us like you taught the people of Israel to trust you and only you. And it's your name we pray.